So let's go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're in a series that we've entitled uh, Strangers in a Strange Land, uh, looking at uh, a study of 1 Peter and uh, a great opportunity for you to continue to uh, correspond with that in uh, our small group study. So if you're not a part of a small group, you can join a small group today. Just sign up in the Friendship Registry and we'll help you find a group that will meet your schedule and location uh, and we will uh, get you plugged into that. But let's go ahead and look to First Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 9 this morning. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. And uh, we'll get right into our text this morning. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that this morning? According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's important we remember that this morning. Peter goes on to say, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to be uh, resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father God, again we come before you and we ask for your spirit to fill us this morning. Father, I pray that as we open your word that you would speak to us. Father, that you would transform us. We are sinners in need of grace, and Lord, we are thankful that by your mercy, you cause us to be alive in Christ. Lord, now allow that change that was done for us to impact every step that we make, every decision uh, that is taken in our lives, and Lord, that we would, because of that change, be the light of Christ to a world that needs to see it. So Lord, speak through me, and Lord, allow these words to be powerful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look at this passage under the heading, Some Real Change to Believe in. As you know, we've just finished an election cycle, and uh, no matter uh, which side of the aisle was talking, it seemed that change was a big promise that was going to be brought. That change because of the uh, practices and the policies that would be brought by the presidential candidates would bring great amount of change to our country and to our world alike. And yet, I like what uh, Bill Crystal of the Weekly Standard said, after all of the time and all of the promises and all of the campaign stops, phone calls and rallies... And who can forget the $2 billion that was spent under the thought of change? He says this election produced no change at all. He said amidst all of it, he said there is from a government level very little that has changed. A house that is run by the Republicans. Uh, The Democrats have the Senate and of course the Democrats have the White House. And he says this change fell on deaf ears. 
And no matter what we thought, change is inevitably not going to be any change at all. It's more of the same, more gridlock and and, uh, more divided government, he goes on to say, and more unlikely or sadly a divided people. And yet we heard over and over again how change was going to come. Can I tell you this morning, I don't mean to bring the political into it, but can I tell you I am glad that no matter what the pundits say, no matter what the politicians tell us about the change that they want to make, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, I am so glad we can look beyond the futility of man's thinking and see the change that Jesus Christ has made in our lives. Because change, politicians talk about change as if they really have a way to produce that change. But what we're going to learn in our passage this morning is that the only one who can change our lives is Jesus Christ. And Jesus has shared with us this morning through the power of his word and through the writing of 1 Peter that he has changed, he has caused something to change in our lives. And what we are going to see is this change that happened in eternity past that was produced at our regeneration, and we'll talk about that, will lead us to understand that there's a greater change that is going to come on the day of our resurrection. Peter calls this the inheritance, and we're going to understand a little bit more today what that looks like. I'm going to look at this under three headings. The first one has to do with hope. The second one has to do with faith. And the third one has to do with love. And so let's look at what Peter has to share with us this morning. And what I want you to see, first of all, is because of the change that will take place as we are born again into a living hope, I want you to see, first of all, that because we're born again, you and I can have an expectant hope. An expectant hope. Notice verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why can we rejoice amidst a letter that's writing about suffering? Why can we rejoice even though Peter is going to talk about trials of various kinds? Why can we rejoice when it seems like the world is a chaotic place? The answer is, is we are ruled by our God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because he's in charge, we don't have to worry. Because he has worked in our lives, we don't have to be filled with fear or be dismayed. Peter understood this. He understood it not just from some esoteric place, but he had experienced it. Remember, the life of Peter is a life of failure, a life of uh, times and opportunities to show great faith and only to have him fail. He knew what it meant to be hopeless. He knew what it meant to be a person who missed his opportunities to make real change in his life and in the life of those around him. And he failed. But there would be a day on that day of Pentecost where he would be filled by the Holy Spirit and hope for a new day would dawn. That regenerating work in his life would change him in such a way that he would go from being a failure to a faith-filled follower of Jesus Christ. His life would never be the same. And he based this walk and he based his life on this idea that there was a hope for the future. So now I talk to a group of Peters, myself included. We've all felt the sting of failure. We've all felt the the great destruction of sin. And in a moment that we think is going to bring God's wrath and his anger, God gives us something else. I want you to notice what this hope gives. 
notice that this salvation in the text, we learn that it doesn't come from any foreknowledge of believing on our part at some later time. Our salvation doesn't come as a result of some foreseen future merit or attractiveness on our part. The only thing that the scripture says, notice that we have salvation, notice what the text says, according to his great mercy. Now I want you to understand this because we begin to forget this, especially when we've been Christians for a while. We begin to get this idea that I had something that I brought to the table. There was a part, even if it was a small part, there was something there. And so when God was looking at the mass of, of people, he looked at me and he said, hey, 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 that Tim, he's a good-looking guy. That, his personality, that's second to none, man. He's got a personality. The intellect that that Tim carries, wow, he's a smart guy. And as if we get this idea that we're on the playground behind the school, and, and what we do is we get picked by God because we've got some sort of something to bring to the table. Brothers and sisters, we don't bring anything at all. The only thing that is brought to us is God's mercy. I want you to understand this word. That word there for mercy is the Greek word elios. It's a powerful word. It's a word that was used to speak of the distinguishing marks of two different people. The first person, which is played by us, is one who is absolutely and positively pathetic. I want you to look to your neighbor and say, you're pathetic. Okay? Now... When you say that, you turn the other way and you tell them you're pathetic too. All right, you've done it enough, all right? We've got that taken care of. It also describes a person who's absolutely miserable, who's afflicted, who finds themselves in a situation that they cannot remedy. They're downtrodden and they are totally in need. And then on the other side is another person who's not pathetic, who's not miserable, who has no need whatsoever. He has all that he needs. He has all the resources to pull from. He has nothing that anybody else can give him. But what this Elios, this mercy is, is that one who has everything, who has no need, who finds himself totally content in his glory and standing, goes to the other and sees that person in their need, and it drives them to action. And what it does is he takes his resources and he gives all that he has to the one who has nothing. This is the great exchange of salvation. We who are pathetic, we who are miserable, we who are dead in our trespasses and sin, we who, according to Ephesians chapter 2, follows the ways of this world, following the prince of the kingdom of the air, the one who is at work in the heart of those who are disobedient, we who are rebels to God, God in his infinite love and mercy said, I'm going to love on you. And you got nothing that I need. So when God looked at Tim, he looked at me and said, boy, you're pitiful. Look at you in your sin. You've got nothing. You're on the road to destruction. But according to my great love and mercy, I'm going to save you. 
Now notice what he causes to take place. Because we see this expectant hope is given to us. But what is given to us? Notice he says that he causes us to be born again to a living hope. The only way we can have this hope given to us is that we have to be born into it. And he's going to speak of this because he's going to speak on the issue of inheritance. But this hope is given to us through the gift of being born again. Now I want you to notice that the word says he causes us to be born again. You and I have as much involvement in our spiritual birth as we did our physical birth. You were there, you experienced it, but you had no idea what was going on. It just started happening to you. And as you did that, something began to happen where as you experienced things, your body began as a way of uh, adapting to the situation, began to experience in a powerful way your new, uh, if you will, atmosphere or world that you're living in. And it was something that wasn't per se all on your own. And this is true of the spiritual life. God has caused you to be born again. This idea of regeneration is something that we have mixed up in our common Christian vernacular. We talk about being born again as a decision I make. I, I want to share with you what our uh, statement of faith shares on this issue of regeneration, which I believe clearly articulates what the Bible says. Regeneration, or the new birth, is the work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work in regeneration is not a result of uh, water baptism or any other outward ritual. Notice what it is. It is a change of heart brought on about by the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin in which sinners respond in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is regeneration? I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. God, according to John chapter 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, says regeneration is that wind of the Spirit that moves in my heart as an unbeliever, and it gives me the faith to see Christ. It gives me the opportunity to turn away from sin and to follow him in righteousness. This is what has been given to us. Now, he says this is a living hope. This new birth into a living hope tells us that the hope that we have isn't just our salvation in the here and now, but there is a day coming, Peter says, will be revealed at the last time. So here's the thing. Here's the redemptive story. You and I have been lost in our trespasses and sin. Jesus Christ has made us alive in him through the death, burial, and resurrection of himself. Because of that, God, through the Holy Spirit, made us alive that we may accept Christ as our Savior, bow the knee to him, and that our lives may be changed and we might have the new birth in the here and now. But that new birth won't be realized until the day of the resurrection. And that, in our new bodies, with our spirit together, we will forever be in eternity with God and in his presence forever. That's redemption. And so what we are experiencing is the new birth that takes us from death into life. Now that's the hope of salvation. And this hope is not something looking to the future and just saying, hey, I hope something is going to take place. The Bears are going to play tonight, and I hope the Bears win. I'm a Bears fan, and I hope they win. But I have no idea if they're going to win or not, right? 
I hope it's a subjective desire, but the hope that Peter talks about is it is a certainty and a full assurance that because what God has done in the past and what he's promised for the future is going to take place. The best way to define biblical hope with regards to the Bears game is for me to fast forward ahead to the end of the Bears game and see that the Bears win 31-20. to then come back and sit with you and say, I hope the Bears win. Well, what do you base that on? I know because I know the beginning and the end. As Christians, we've been given the beginning. God loves us and has put his love upon us, and we've been born again into a living hope. We know at the end that we know that we will be with Christ forever, and we will enjoy his presence in all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, we know the beginning from the end, and because of that, we have a living hope. A hope that is alive, a hope that should change every aspect of our lives today. It should lead us to obedience, it should lead us to righteousness, it should be uh, the moving force in our life that allows us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. Now why is this fact real and true? The answer is, notice the text, it is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why can we have hope that we'll spend eternity with heaven? Because Jesus Christ did not remain in the grave. But Jesus Christ was raised from death into life just as he promised he would. And because he did that, and he has told us that he's going to do that for us, we can stand secure in the knowledge that he who promised is faithful. And so we can have hope. We can have hope. Now, understand that this hope is more than just hanging on for dear life. And some of you are there and you're hanging on and and you're hearing me say, well, just think happy thoughts during your trials and troubles. No, brothers and sisters, that's not it at all. Hope is something that gives us, if you will, the ballast in the bottom of our ship or boat to be able to endure the, the waves that come with the storms of life. This hope should be the hope of every believer, and it should be growing. The hope you have for the eternal life in Jesus Christ should be more today than it was yesterday, and it should be more tomorrow than it was today. But what is this hope looking for in the future? It's looking for a time where we will stand before the presence of God, sinless, able to worship him in full spirit and truth. Now notice this hope, look at the text, it tells us that we are brought into this, into an inheritance. I wonder if the readers of this letter in the first century who were Jewish were saying, bingo, we've heard about this before. Ever since the days of our father Abraham, who had been promised not only a great nation, but a place to put this great nation, that we would receive an inherited promised land. And so no doubt they were aware of this promise, And yet what we are being told is, as a group of resident aliens who are not living in a promised land, we're not even living in a land that is our own, that this land is not the promise. This world isn't our promise, but the promise is that there's a day coming where we will be home in the presence of Almighty God. And so as a result of that, we no longer have to worry about what comes our way. Because one day we will dwell with God and enjoy his presence forever. Now, some may say, Tim, that's all fine and good. But what happens if I 
break my side of the promise? Or Tim, what happens if I find myself getting lost? What will happen then? What will happen to this great promise, this great hope that was given to me? I use an iPad to preach from, and I was given it as a gift. And it wasn't something I was looking forward to. I'm not very technologically savvy, but I've come to really enjoy it. Two weeks into owning this, when it was still hip to have an iPad, because now people say, oh, you don't have the mini iPad yet. Okay? So when it was still kind of hip to have the iPad 2, I was with my family, and uh, we were heading to church, and I was taking it, and uh, I was yelling at one of my children who remained nameless, and because you can't yell at your children and hold the Bible at the same time, I set the, the Bible and the uh, iPad on the hood of my car, and uh, it's, it, it doesn't stay on the hood of the car, and it broke. And so we picked it up, and it was all shattered and everything, and I'm sitting there going, someone just spent a whole lot of money, and what did I do? I was so negligent with it that it broke, and it was all shattered. I called it the hillbilly iPad, okay? And I was brokenhearted. And so when you have technological issues or concerns, you can do one of two things. You can first of all pray to God, which I did, and then you call Keith Duff. And I called Keith, and I said, Keith, you're not going to believe it. The iPad broke. And he said, that's not good. And I said, it's all shattered. What should I do? He says, well, let's look on the Internet. Let's see what it will cost to fix. And, and it cost hundreds of dollars. And I'm like, i got to fix it because the person that gave it to me isn't going to be very happy if I walk around with an iPad that doesn't work and shattered. So I'm going to have to fix this, and I don't want to spend that kind of money, but I'm going to do it. And Keith says, well, let me, let me take it to the Apple store, and let's see what uh, they say, see how they can fix it. So I'm like, all right, Keith, I give him the iPad. He takes it to the Apple store, and uh, he tells this pathetic story of this uh, big, bald guy who, who can't keep things nice. And uh, the guy tells him, it's going to cost us $399, okay? I don't want to spend $399, but I'm going to uh, because it was a gift. And then when he's saying, okay, we'll go ahead and get it fixed, the man says to Keith, um, so the guy really uses it a lot, right? And he says, yeah, and he's really disappointed that it broke. Keith says, yeah, pray for him, he's a dummy, and yeah. And, uh, and the guy says, all right, just give me a second. And he walks out, and he takes my broken iPad, and he hands Keith a brand new iPad in the box. And he says, here at Apple, uh, we, we want to be good to our customers. And it was an accident. Those things happen. Here's a brand new one. But here's the thing. He looked at Keith and he says, but we only do this once. <laughs> now, the reason why I bring that up is God doesn't do that. As great as customer service is by the company of Apple, what God does over and over again with this new hope and this new birth is we fail. We're broken. We're flawed. And God doesn't say, all right, I'll forgive you this once. He forgives us over and over and over. And just, just for the sake of things, go ad nauseum over and over and over. And you haven't even scratched the surface on God's forgiving love to us. If that doesn't warm our hearts, then you need to check your spiritual temperature because this is the hope that God has given us. He's given it, and as a result of that, we see it's given. Now, I want you to notice it's guaranteed. 
Notice what he says about the text with regards to this hope. He says it cannot be destroyed. It's imperishable. Simply, the word means not subject to decay. It's God's guarantee that this hope of eternal life will not be worn out with the passage of time. This word imperishable, God speaks of himself using this word. So he stands behind the guarantee that it will never be destroyed. Number two, it cannot be defiled. It is unstained by sin. Our inheritance of eternal life is in perfect condition, free from any spot or blemish. It has nothing in it that defiles. It's as pure as the pure driven snow, and it has no effect or influence that would deform it or debase it or cause it to lose its value. This eternal life in Christ cannot be cheapened in any way, and it will never disappoint the recipient. Number three, it is unfading. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It's not like the iPad that it's pretty hip for a couple days until a new one comes out. You're never going to hear God say, oh, you got the old model of the inheritance. Oh, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of the new one. The one that was set in motion before the foundations of the earth is the one that will remain true into the eons of eternity to come. God is faithful, and he will see this inheritance come through, and he stands behind it, and that inheritance in eternity is like the mercies of God. It will be new every morning because great is the faithfulness of God. Now notice, God stands behind this. Notice what he says. Peter uses the word that this inheritance is kept for you. That word kept is the Greek word tereo. It is used here of our inheritance that it's being kept, held, preserved, or reserved. And it's done so for a definite purpose. You and I are not uh, receiving our inheritance yet. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? After all of these great people walked by faith, And it says in the text that they did not receive the promise that they were looking forward to. Likewise, in the here and now, you and I are not experiencing the hope of our inheritance yet. It's being kept for us. To give you the best illustration of this, some of you no doubt have gone to a Broadway show or to some sports event where you have been given tickets, but the tickets are not in your hand. And so they tell you, you have to go to a window called the will call window. And that will call window is where you receive the tickets for your entrance or your admittance into the show or to the game that you're going to. What is happening right now with this inheritance is that we are waiting for when the time comes and we go to the will call window of heaven and we will stand before God and God will say, welcome into the presence of my uh, almighty uh, heaven and all that it affords. And it is here because your name has been reserved. Your name has been kept. Now it's not like a motel or hotel reservation that you get overbooked or an airplane reservation. Why? Because he goes on to say that this inheritance is guarded by God. It is guarded, so God is keeping it. And then he says, if you're worried you're going to lose it, let me tell you something. It is guarded. Is the word guarded there is for reo. It's a military term that has two distinct meanings. 
The first meaning phoreo has, the idea of being guarded, was a military term that spoke of a city and a guard who guarded the city from outside invaders. So he watched what was going on and he said, no one's going to come into my city because I'm going to guard against any foreign intruder from entering in. What that tells me is, is that my inheritance, nobody can take away. My enemies can't take it away. Sinners can't take it away. The devil can't take it away. Nobody can take my inheritance away from me. Jesus reminds us of this when he says, no one can pluck you out of my Father's hand. Nobody. But the second word or usage for this word phoreo is the idea that it is the protective wall that guards the inhabitants from going outside of the city. And what it means is, is especially it would protect the innocents, the innocent ones in the city from finding their way outside of the city and into harm. And this is very important. Because we worry, well, what can uh, men and women do to us? They can wreak havoc in our lives, but they can't take our salvation. Praise the Lord for that. But likewise, I can't get lost. I can't run outside of the grace of God because the same God who guards and protects me from outside invaders also protects me from being my worst enemy myself. And so if I fall to sin, if I find myself wandering, God says even in your wandering you are guarded and that inheritance is there for you. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you can't sin your way outside of the grace of God. You can't. When God has saved us, he has redeemed us, and whatever fails and frailties that we have, God guards us against it. And so then what does he call us to? Now you say, Tim, you spent a ton of time on this first point. Here's the reason why. Because if you don't get what God has done for you, then everything in this world is going to trip you up. If you don't know how great God is with regards to your inheritance, then the trials and tribulations that you face will seem a whole lot bigger than they really are. And so notice, what he then moves us to, Peter does, is he says, you've got this great expectant hope. Now, because of the new birth in Christ, you have an enduring faith. You have an enduring faith. Now, the reason why this is important is because we're going to talk about trials. And if you're like me, and if you're like Peter, then the trials are big things in your life. There's no such thing as a small trial. They're all big. They're all important. They all rock our world. And we can get this idea in our minds that the trials are bigger than God. Well, God has just spent some time through Peter saying, hey, nothing can happen to you. And so now notice what he says. He says now we have this inheritance that's been kept by God. It's guarded by God. And he says, in this you rejoice, in the hope that you have, that you can never be separated from the love of God. He says this. Though now for a little while, verse 6, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this world, we have not received the full benefits of the inheritance that we have. And like James, Peter tells us we're going to have in this world troubles. But we need to rejoice in those troubles. We need to consider them joy. 
Not because we're getting beat up, but because we know that the time and the day is coming where there'll be no more trials, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more affliction, because we'll be with God. And yet, when we begin to do that, some things will take place. I want you to notice a phrase there. Notice the phrase, if necessary. If necessary. First of all, we need to understand a couple things about this word or phrase, if necessary. Number one, what it means is not all of us will endure the same types of trials. He says trials of all kinds. And so what you may be struggling with, your neighbor may not be struggling with. And what they're struggling with, I may not be struggling with. And what I'm struggling with, you may not be struggling with. And we can just go on with that circle. Here's why I'm thankful. Think about this for a moment. Think for a moment you come to church... And we're all struggling with the same thing, and none of us have any answer to fix it. It'd be a pretty hopeless time at Village Bible Church, right? We're all got this problem that nobody can face. I am so glad that I can come into this place and know that not everybody's struggling with the same trial I am. Some struggled with it earlier. And so I may have a question or a struggle with my kids. I can go to those and say, man, my my kids are driving me crazy. And they're not doing anything that I need them to do, and it's wreaking havoc within my family. And someone can say, hey, I was there before, and God has been faithful. And let me share with you what God has done. Or maybe you find your marriage all out of whack, and you sit there and say, where do I go for hope? And you can go to a brother and sister in Christ and receive what you need in your hour of need for your marriage. Not all of us are going to endure the same trials. Notice the next thing, that none of us will have the trials of the same intensity. Understand this, they're trials of all kinds. And so what is going on here? We see that these trials will have varying heat levels to them, if you will. Some will endure some difficult trials, while others will endure incredibly heartbreaking and earth-shattering trials. And we'll ask the question, why them and not us? Because God says not all trials will be the same. The next thing I want you to see is notice here the phrase, if necessary, means that someone is determining whether that trial needs to happen or not. Here's what God is telling us. He is saying that he is the one who determines the trials in your life. And what I want you to know, and has come of great solace to me in my times of trial, is to remember that no trial happens in your life without the express, written consent of God. What that means is nothing goes across his desk, or I'm sorry, nothing goes across our desk without first going across his desk and him marking approved. And so what we can know is when a trial comes to our lives, we can know that God is there. He's approving the trial. He's allowing the trial to take place. And he has told me that I will be able to endure under it. What a great promise. And so what that faith then allows me to do is a couple things. Number one, it allows me to see beyond the temporal. It allows me to see beyond the temporal. He says the phrase, for a little while. That's the word oligos. Oligos is a word we tend to forget when trials come. Because if you're like me, a trial comes and I go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? This is so bad, this is going to ruin our lives. And I forget that this is just for a short time. 
This word oligos means tiny and small. It speaks of the duration and intensity of the trial that you're facing. Now, does that mean the trials in and of themselves are not anything at all? Not not at all. Many of the struggles that we're facing are life and death issues. Many of the trials that we're facing are life-changing troubles. They're scary, they're heartbreaking, and this is where we need faith. The faith to see in this world, yes, I will have trouble, and they are big troubles, but I'm going to take heart because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. So what is cancer? So what is marital strife? So what is a child who is wayward? It's huge in the here and now, but set up against the backdrop of Christ and his glorious kingdom that is to come, we will one day look back, as Paul says, and look at our trials as light and momentary. It doesn't mean they're here in the here and now, but faith allows us to see beyond them and see the sunny day that's coming after the storm. Notice it allows us to soar above temptation. One of the things that I'm told over and over again is what will happen if a trial and tribulation comes to my life? How do I know that I will remain faithful? How do I know if something bad happens in my life that I will remain true? The answer is found in the text. He says in this, for a little while you'll go through trials, And he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, even though it perishes, though tested by the fire, gold does, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, you're going to endure trials. And the God who saved you is the God who's going to walk with you every step of the way. And every time you need that grace, remember what verse 2 says, grace and peace are going to be multiplied to you over and over again. So some of you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and God is saying through 1 Peter, you don't need to be afraid. I am with you. But what if I make the wrong decisions? What if I find myself falling uh, to this temptation? Peter knows better than anybody that when you fail big, God's faithfulness comes even bigger. And God met him, and he meets us every step of the way. This is what we call the doctrine of perseverance. Just very quickly, let's throw this up there. It says the following. Help me out there, Dennis. Thank you. Perseverance is uh, the idea of enduring to the end, which is promised to all true believers. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace. But will, pers- but will persevere to the very end of their earthly lives. Now, believers may fall into sin, that's true, through neglect and temptation, thereby grieving the Spirit and bringing reproach to the cause of Christ and coming under the Lord's discipline. Nevertheless, God's promise is sure. He who began the work of salvation will be faithful to see it through to completion. You don't have to worry that you're going to outsin the love of God. Now, let's just remember, and just as a way of clarification, that doesn't mean we can sin so that grace may abound. Because one of the ways that you'll know if you're a believer is if when you sin, you're like, I don't want to do that. If you're just sinning and there's no thought of what that sin is doing to your fellowship, then I'm going to tell you, you better start worrying about whether you're saved or not. But this is talking to real and true believers, and it's a word of reminder 
that because we've been born again into a living hope, because he's the one who keeps it and guards it, we can have confidence that we're going to see through whatever temptation and trial comes our way. And what that will allow us to do is one final thing, is that is sing amidst the trial. Sing amidst the trial. Notice he says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. One of the ways that we will know that we are following with an enduring faith, following God, is can we sing amidst the trial? Can we say, as this hymn writer does, it is well with my soul? Can we say that this morning? That no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this world, suffering and persecution, trials and tribulation, that I can say, because of what God has promised me, that I can rest assured in this trial that God will be faithful. Now I'll tell you, this issue of singing amidst trials is what changed my life as a 14-year-old kid. With the death of my brother, I was awestruck by my parents' faithfulness before my brother died. And amidst looking at my brother's lifeless body, my father broke out in praise. Guy has a terrible voice. And yet the morgue was filled with singing that day because my dad saw a God who is utterly faithful. And I sat there and said, I want that. Because the world's going to throw me a whole lot of stuff. And I want to be able to sing amidst the trials of my life. So how do we get there? Let me just close very quickly with what we see as an expressive love. The new birth brings something. Notice what it brings. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What happens when we are changed by the new birth of, of Jesus Christ as we are brought into this living hope? Our love changes. We love not a place, but a person. And the promise that that person has given. Notice, first of all, that this love gives us an undaunting belief. Notice, even though we've never seen Jesus, we're here today. And we love Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We praise his holy name. And we do so because faith, that which God has given us, produces in us love. Love for a man who said he was God. And we love him and we believe. And we believe which causes us to obey. And it causes us to bow our knee daily and to follow him every step of the way. This love is in one that we've not seen and we do not see now, but it's founded in the hope that one day we will see him and we will see him eye to eye and we will be just like him. And finally, it gives us an unbelievable bliss. I want you to close your eyes for a moment as I close this message. And I want to read to you this phrase he uses in this text. And just listen, let your hearts be filled with this thought. You've got troubles. You've got circumstances. You feel like this life has brought you nothing but trouble and persecution and suffering. Listen to what Peter says. He says that this love in Christ will allow us to rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. That joy that is inexpressible, that word inexpressible is only found here 
in all of Scripture. Now listen to what this joy is. Defined, it is the, a joy that is so profound and so overwhelming that it leaves us speechless. It is a joy that cannot be expressed in words. It's an all-glorious joy that wraps the human Christian heart with hints of heaven and a glimpse of the glory yet to be revealed. Brothers and sisters, what Peter is saying is that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. Such is our inheritance. Such is our salvation. And that is why no matter what strife or struggle or issue we we may be facing, we can stand confident and say we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, no matter what this world throws our way. And that's why Peter starts this out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we come before you and we bless your name. You are the one who has caused us to be born again. You are the one who has given us a living hope. You are the one who keeps us and guards uh, our salvation. You are the one who will test us, though by fire, but it will produce that which is most glorifying and good in your sight. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling, those who are hurting, those who find themselves tired. And, Lord, I remind them in your presence to remember how utterly faithful you are. Lord, even though we're faithless, you are faithful. You have saved us. You are saving us. And one day we will be glorified in your presence, enjoying salvation. But, Lord, till that day, I pray that we will be faithful, we will be holy, and we will pursue righteousness every step of the way. Lord, we're going to need your spirit to leave this place because this world goes by a different thinking and it pursues very different priorities. So give us your spirit to live this way and allow us to be obedient as we leave this place. In Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen.